and I'm going to switch our cable so that we can hopefully All right, we're working. Excellent. So we are continuing our way through God's big picture tonight. The whole idea of taking this grand look at the overall trajectory of the story of the Bible under the assumption, obviously, um, that the Bible is one book given by one divine author, ultimately, even though he worked through human authors, is what we have been exploring and seeing how all these pieces that we are trying to get sense of as we look throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and how they all fit together. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at this idea, this concept of the kingdom of God as this theme that we are using to trace the narrative of the Bible as it goes from Genesis through to Revelation. And tonight we are going to be continuing in that fourth one there that's highlighted the idea of the partial kingdom. To put that in perspective, let's just take a look at this um, little picture once again to kind of get a glimpse of where we've come from Genesis 1 through to Genesis 12. This idea, if you were with us, it's always good. Repetition is the mother of learning as it goes. And if you haven't been with us, this helps you get up to speed with where we are. And then we can move forward with some new momentum tonight to explore a little bit further. But we looked in the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2 of how God created everything. And we see this idea of God's kingdom being God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve under God's rule, his word uh, in his place, the garden there, where they were able to enjoy perfect relationship with him and with one another. We saw how that perished or that was spoiled in Genesis 3 with humanity choosing to not live under God's rule and blessing and to have their own rule, a name for themselves, and how we see how that perished. So we read Genesis 3 to 11. We see that people start to die. We see the first murder. We see wickedness on the face of the earth, God hitting a reset button and flooding everything, causing chaos again. All the while, though, moving towards Genesis 12, there was little bits of lights of hope. Noah's family, uh, Enoch being taken away and not dying because he walked with God. We came to Genesis 12 and we see that God made a promise to an insignificant relatively gentleman Abram in the Middle East and he promised basically to start a rescue plan to reverse all this that would come through his promise to this one individual. And how we looked at how that started playing out last week, coming in partial, maybe, partial form, <laughs> as we get to Genesis 12 through to 2 Chronicles 36. Um, and that's what we're continuing to explore. So last week we looked at um, God's people, how through these sections from Genesis 12 to 2 Corinthians 36, those elements of God's people under God's rule and blessing uh, in his place, we're going to be seeing how those kind of get developed over this broad section of the Old Testament. And then in, in a future week, we're going to add this idea of a king, um, the Messiah. And so just to refresh us again, this promise that he made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. 
The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, a people, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is the rescue plan given, the redemption plan given in seed form through these promises to Abram that we are going to see played out as we start navigating our way now through the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament. So again, we are working our way through now pointing toward Christ. We already looked at this idea of God bringing that first promise, making them into a great nation. If you remember, if you weren't here last week, we talked about three kind of principles that play out in this story developing. One is supernatural intervention. Another is sovereign providence. And the last is saving by substitute. And we're just going to kind of trace that again real quickly. If you remember, when God gave this promise to Abram, he was not exactly a youthful young buck. He was rather advanced in years, and it would be rather miraculous for him and his wife, Sarai, to have a child. So it required supernatural intervention. In fact, when when the Lord told Abram that his wife, Sarai, would have a child, he fell face down, he laughed, and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And how ironic then that this boy that God brings supernaturally through Sarai is named Isaac. And we talked about how God points forward to the New Testament, this idea of um, promise and fulfillment, this idea of redemption that would ultimately come through Jesus through another supernatural birth. But we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We saw this principle of sovereign providence, how God was, this idea of providence, that God, sovereign meaning God is in charge, ruler, lawgiver, and able then through his providence to coordinate all aspects of human history so that what he has promised here, sorry, and here actually will not be derailed, (laughs) That when he says, I promise to bless all nations through you, I promise these things will come to pass, God in his sovereign providence can rule and overrule and work through all the ups, downs, dark valleys, difficult things to understand and grasp to work out his good sovereign purpose in bringing this redemption. And so the Lord laid this out to Abram long before. He said this picture here, remember from the scriptures where he says, go out and look up at the sky and so shall your offspring be if you can number the stars in the sky. But then it says the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Again, just recapturing this idea of how does God bring this elderly couple with no children to bless them into a great nation? He is supernaturally 
intervening, and he is sovereignly with providence guiding it through. So that's the story we see. One element, that idea of salvation by substitute that we didn't get into last week that I wanted to, we did get into the idea of salvation by substitute, um, but this, the principle is introduced earlier than I brought it up. Um, I will get to what we spoke about last week, but this week I wanted to touch on it. Somebody mentioned it to me afterwards. We actually saw substitution before this, and I said, yes, I know, and I forgot to mention it. So I want to mention it tonight, where God, after his son was born, God supernaturally intervenes, and Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah, and God says to Abraham, go take your son, your son whom you love, and offer him to me, sacrifice him to me. And the scripture says that as they're going along and uh, they have the wood and they have the knife and they're going to where God says to make the sacrifice, that Isaac turns to his father and says, you know, where's, where's, the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abram replied, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when he went to lay him on the altar to plunge the knife into him to sacrifice him, the angel of the Lord came and said, Abram, stop! Now I know that you love the Lord and there was a, uh, and you will obey his voice and there was a, a ram in the thicket caught, as you see in the picture. And the Lord had provided a substitute for Isaac. As the story progresses in the the, the, the nation, the family develops through the offspring of Isaac, through Jacob, and he has 12 sons through his, his various means. Um, we see how Joseph was sent down to Egypt. And again, we see God's sovereign providence in this, how they intended something for evil, his brothers, who were so jealous of him and couldn't stand the sight of him. And Joseph, who had done nothing wrong, who had maintained his integrity, uh, God raised up not only for himself, but in this providential fulfillment of his plan to bless the nations, including Egypt, uh, provided uh, for food in famine. And so Joseph says to his brothers when they were fearful, he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for our good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so this is how God brought them to Egypt. And in Egypt, we saw that they multiplied and filled the land. Remember God's sovereign providence of saying, no for certain, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be enslaved. They, they should have known it was coming. And they were enslaved. And God sent Moses. And again, I'm broad strokes here. Remember, we're not going detail. But God sent Moses as his messenger and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And as a demonstration of I am who I am, I am who will show myself to be. I, I am who I am. He came in, in the plagues targeting the, 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 the royal and spiritual life of Egypt. He intervened and rescued his people out of slavery. And the last plague that we saw was again an instance of salvation by substitute. So do you see the repetition that is developing here and the picture that starts in seed form and just starts to emerge as we move further and further into the Old Testament towards the new. <clears throat> if you recall, the Lord told Moses to have the Israelites take a perfect unblemished lamb that they were to slaughter it, that they were to take the blood 
and apply it to the doorposts of their houses that as this angel went through that was going to kill the firstborn throughout all Egypt unless his blood was applied to the doorposts, that they were to do this, and if they did, that it says no destructive plague will, plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Again, this idea of salvation by substitute and God delivering by supernatural intervention. So they leave. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. He changes his mind as they're leaving. They seem pinned up against the Red Sea. And they're like, what are we going to do? We're trapped. The Red Sea here, Pharaoh's army is coming. What are we going to do? And perhaps one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. <laughs> um, we actually have it on our wall at home, one of these verses. We see another example of God's supernatural intervention in delivering and preserving his people so that his purposes for this kingdom promise to come through them, ultimately through Jesus, comes to pass. But Moses answered the people, said, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And the great delivering act of God in the Old Testament is seen on display here where the wind comes and the seas part and they go through as on dry land and God's promise where he says you'll never see these people again comes to pass. God providentially working to bring all of this so that at the end of it all this nation that started as an elderly couple and then is enslaved ends up powerfully delivered, not because they were wise, not because they were particularly committed and devoted. If you read through the Old Testament, you find they grumbled, they complained, they failed, a lot like us. <laughs> so all the way through, we see this principle that it is by God's grace, by his purposes, that he's bringing all these things to pass, which brings us to where we are tonight as we start thinking about, okay, God has established and preserved a people, the nation of Israel, taking them from this elderly, uh, sterile, childless couple to now a mighty nation host that's been delivered in a powerful way. And the Lord says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, my people. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So now this now moves to our, our next development, if you will, of this idea of God's people. So we've recapped that. Tried to do it. Briefly, I almost, I got a sense last week too, I could have done it clearer. So I tried to capture it again tonight. And now let's move forward to this idea of this people now delivered, actually living under God's rule and blessing, which is what we see developed here in this idea of this partial kingdom. That we see the elements of the rescue plan of things coming back under God's rule once again. Remember what was rejected and what caused it to perish was humanity saying no to God and his rule. That's where the breakdown came. God will not tolerate usurpers to his rule. It must be, uh, must be judged. God delivers his people graciously 
And now he offers how they are to live as his now delivered people under his rule. We see that in Exodus 19, which is where we're going to pick up, where I just read. And if the broad strokes of the story, the first event we see is the the giving of the law. God's rule as seen in the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It should be on the screen there. And it says, And God spoke all these words, and he starts by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And it's important for us to recognize here, as God is giving the law, he is giving it to people he has already delivered and said you are my people he is not saying here's my law if you keep it then I'll deliver you and you'll be my people but he's saying I'm the God who delivered you I carried you on eagles wings now here is how you live under my rule and my blessing Uh, the writer of the book much of which we are using to to base our talks on and another book um, God's big picture, the writer says this, Von Roberts, about God's rule and the Mosaic law. He says, he redeems them before they receive the law. Their obedience, then, is not a desperate attempt to earn his salvation, his his acceptance. It is a response to the salvation he has already achieved for them. They didn't contribute anything to it. They were slaves. They were powerless. They were trapped. God supernaturally intervenes and in his sovereign providence delivers them. And now says, as my people, this is how you live under my rule and blessing. And it's so important that we grasp that the promise, sorry, I'm going to go back to this. I'm jumping around. That the promise of this coming kingdom came long before the giving of the law. Hundreds of years. That God's saying the promise that he gave to Abraham and then hundreds of years, 400 years. And the deliverance takes place before the law ever shows up. Because there's to be no confusion about what is the basis for God's rescue plan. It is not human performance and wisdom and skill. All of that God rejected even in the beginning pages of Genesis when Sarah said, God's plan isn't working. Take her. Have a baby with her. No. God will supernaturally intervene because we are incapable. God will sovereignly and providentially carry out his kingdom purposes because it's his prerogative to do so. He's God. And this is important as we come through and we think about this idea of that trajectory line pointing to the cross of Jesus because everything that was written prior is for our instruction to lead us to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul wrote this, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. God said to Abraham, your offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky and Abram said, okay, I trust you. And God says, you are righteous in my sight for that response. Not of any performance 
or anything that he had done. For of those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. See, the promise comes to pass not because of law, but because of sovereign providence in bringing it to pass. And so when we come tonight, and we won't get too far ahead of ourselves again, but I always want to give you a teaser of how this leads us to the feet of Jesus and the cross, and I hope it makes you look at him with greater depth of insight and admiration and love and appreciation for all that he has done for us. And so when we think about this idea of the partial kingdom, we see God delivering the Israelites. They're the people of God now delivered. And now he's giving them this law which spans Exodus through to the end of Leviticus. Many different laws about what it meant for them as this people of God in the Old Testament to live under God's rule and blessing. But the important thing to remember is that didn't make them God's people. It was how they were to live as God's people under his rule and blessing. And so you remember what was true in the garden. They lived under God's rule and blessing, and he was there with them. Perfect relationship with him and with one another. It's no surprise, therefore, that when Jesus sums up the law, when he's asked, what are the greatest commandments in the law? What does he say? The greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we see the life of Israel come to pass and this partial fulfillment of the kingdom in the Old Testament, this kingdom promise, we have God's rule and blessing, but we also see God's presence coming back among his people. A taste of that being fully reversed, that being banished from the presence of God when they were, they were out, of the, out of Eden. And now we see God's presence coming back among them in something called the tabernacle. So here they are delivered in the wilderness and we have this presence of God coming back among them in the tabernacle. And in Exodus 29:44 there's actually several chapters of Exodus as we get to actually Exodus 25 through uh, 29 really the end of that chapter deals actually even the beginning of 30 deals with this the, the dimensions, the, the fabricating of this courtyard built with a tent um, that you see pictured here with God's presence with the pillar of fire and cloud. And it says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see the emphasis he was trying to make there. God was now going to dwell among them. He had rescued them. He had redeemed and delivered them and now he had given them his law and he was giving them a tangible way to perceive that he was actually his presence among them. Another picture of the tabernacle here, just to give you an idea. This was to be set up, as we'll, we'll see in just a few moments, in the center of the Israelite camp. You can see there was like a, a curtain, I guess you could say, and this was mobile, so this could be, this could be moved. But this idea, as you, as you see it, if you look in... Uh, is it... 
trying to remember the, well, I gave you the passage in Exodus 19, I mean 29, 25 through 30. Um, but the arrangement of how the Israelites went around this is found in Numbers chapter 2. But we'll look at this really quickly. So if this is like a, a schematic, I guess, if you will, um, of putting together the tabernacle. And this is measurements in cubits. And if you went through those chapters, you could see all these elements that were there. But what I want you to focus on in particular is what's on your left, my right. That this tent had a place called the holy place and then there was the holy of holies all the way to the left where this item called the ark of the covenant was and if you're of my generation all you can think of is harrison ford and raiders of the lost ark and somehow this ark of the covenant is some super weapon the nazis want but nothing of the sort it was actually more like a throne it was meant to be the enthronement of God in the midst of his people. That this was like a king's tent pitched among his people. God's presence with his people restored, but not only his presence just for anything, his presence as their king. That he was to rule over them. He delivered them, you know, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that we sung about. He delivered them and now he was inviting them to graciously live under his rule as his covenant people. But do you remember what ruined all of this? What was it? People saying no to God's rule. Sin is what was the problem. And so that area was, was off limits. That was God's. How could God's holy presence, because this is how it was meant to be, Actually, if you read Numbers 2, I think it's a, a little different arrangement that it was more like a square around this, but the tabernacle was in the middle. And if you read Numbers 2, it talks about how the tribes were to arrange themselves essentially around the tabernacle. That the life of the people of God at the center was their ruling and reigning king who had delivered them. But how could he live as a holy God in the midst of his sinful people. If you read the Old Testament, you find they fail frequently again and again and again. We'll get to that in just a moment. But that idea of salvation by substitute comes up again. I just think it's interesting that we think this through again, that trajectory to the New Testament. And I think we've talked about this in, in recent months, in the last year at least, of the idea of Jesus actually coming. I think it was at Christmas time. We talk about how Jesus tabernacled among us. And this idea, this imagery from the Old Testament, when we think about the Word became flesh, the Bible says, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, 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 the, and the Word was God. And then it says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, is literally, he pitched his tent, he tabernacled. So when Jesus showed up on earth and he took on flesh, he was taking on flesh and arriving, tabernacling among us, saying, here I am, I'm king. I've come to rescue, to redeem, and to rule. And so this idea carries forward again to the New Testament. We've seen his glory. Do you remember this picture? The glory of God among them. 
in his presence, how he had come and set up camp among them. Jesus did the same for us who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so if we go back to the story in the Old Testament, we see, again, how the storyline proceeds with how does God, in his holiness, desiring to live among his sinful people, how does he do that? He does it again by sacrifice. God says of this Ark of the Covenant that his presence would be there. There above the cover between the two cherubim, so the Ark of the Covenant you see there was a golden box, about one and a half cubits, a cubit's about 18 inches, by one and a half by two and a half, had these angels on the top, the cherubim, that, that are over the Ark of the Covenant. I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So God is saying his presence, as you see it with the pillar of fire and cloud, would be there. It was like his throne, like his footstool. And that's where he would meet with them. And this is where God says, this is the place where once a year, Aaron was to go through a particular ceremony where an animal would be sacrificed and the blood would be sprinkled on this, what's called mercy seat, the cover. And it would cover the sins of the people for a year, temporarily. It's found in Leviticus chapter 16. Again, we're looking at how do they live as God's people under his rule. It's only because, again, of salvation by substitute. Some nice goats there, right? So Aaron shall bring two goats. If we go to Leviticus, actually you may want to turn there because I may reference slightly outside of there. So Leviticus chapter 16. And it says, as we come, actually, I will look at verse 8. Verse 7, sorry. Aaron, in this ceremony, there is a bull, but we're going to focus on the goats. He says, he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, this tabernacle. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. So what is the imagery here, again, that's coming up? As we saw earlier with Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac, God provided a substitute, life for life. In Egypt, when the, when the plague came, taking all the firstborn, God said there's to be a lamb, an unblemished lamb, that was to be a substitute, life for life. Here, with these goats and the other sacrifices in the Levitical system, of the priest system here, it was this idea that there is a life for a life. The blood shed is the life blood, a life for life. That for atonement to happen, there needed to be a substitute who was sacrificed in place. And then notice the imagery. It says of the, the sins would then be, in a sense, a scapegoat. There's scapegoats all the time now, right? In politics, there's lots of people looking for scapegoats over the last few weeks, right? All kinds of scapegoats. What's the idea? We put the guilt upon the scapegoat and send it away so it doesn't stick to us politically speaking, or in your workplace, wherever it is. That's what God is providing here, a scapegoat. It's where it comes from, this idea that our guilt 
The guilt of the people went upon the scapegoat and it's sent off into the wilderness and it's carried away. A substitute. All of this, this story, this partial kingdom as it's coming to fulfillment and we'll look at other dynamics over the next week or so. All of this, again, is this idea of promise and fulfillment. That is, we read this through the lens of, I'm so happy I'm getting new glasses this week. I can see you all, but you are a bit not quite so sharp. Next week you'll look even sharper. It'll be great. Um, but the idea is we look through the Old Testament, and we should be looking with lenses from the New Testament now, back and forth. Because remember, the whole idea is we're getting this appreciation of the whole flow of Scripture, and we should be able to navigate our way saying, oh, I think I see where these pieces are starting to fit together. And how this imagery in the Old Testament helps me see Jesus better. And as I think of Jesus, I see, oh, there's a whole system out of which this grew that makes me appreciate it all the more. And the pieces fit together and there's so much richer appreciation for what God has done for us in Christ. This idea of the Old Testament being that portion of promise and coming to fulfillment through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this, as we think about this sacrifice, sac uh, salvation by substitute. That the law, what we've been going through, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, it can, it can never by the same sacrifices, the goats, the bulls, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. No matter how sincere the people were, the blood of goats and bulls cannot really deal with sin. God allowed that to kind of be how he worked for centuries with the idea knowing that the fulfillment is yet to come. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? If the goats worked, the goats would have loved this, right? The goat lobby, no more sacrifices, it worked. You know, we don't have to worry about it next year. But they didn't work. They had to keep being offered to cover it for another year. For the worshipers would, not, would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But it is not impossible for the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who does actually take away the sins of the world. <laughs> All those things were a foreshadow. He is the reality. And so therefore the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, not a goat, not a bull, but the Lamb of God himself, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, entering into the Holy of Holies, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So what's the point of training? What's the point of being equipped? What's the point of expanding our knowledge of Scripture? Is that you love Jesus more and you're drawn to him like a, like a moth to light. He's just compelled. He's, he's wonderful. He's, he takes our sin away so we can come actually, remember what was the whole point, into the presence 
of God. We live in his presence as his people experiencing his rule and his blessing. So we see this picture coming out in the partial kingdom. So some takeaways for us to think about is I would really encourage you to um, reflect why God's promise to Abraham came before the giving of the law, why that's so essential for how you walk with God. Thinking of what Mike was talking a bit about today with false teaching of, of legalism. You know, in life and, and liberty, how do these things work together? A passage you could read is the one I was in Romans 4. be a great place to start. Another would be maybe to think about the significance of God's presence being known at the center of the camp. Think about what that means for your life, for your family, for us as a church. That in reality, we should be, the life of, of the kingdom should be manifest among us so that God's presence is an undeniable reality in our midst. And the way we love and the way we serve one another and the world, remember he says, I will bless all nations through you. And then I did this a little bit today. Try to envision the goats at that day of atonement. You know, my sin being transferred to them. And then how does that impact my understanding of what of the work of Christ for me on the cross. And to think of him as your scapegoat and what your response of your heart would be to him. So I hope these, uh, this, this review as we've gone through how did God bring about these people of God? How did he begin to have them live under his rule and reign in the Old Testament as this partial kingdom promise starts to come to pass? Uh, leads you to love Jesus more and want to walk with him more closely. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for the beautiful picture it gives us, reminding us that it reveals ultimately you, your purposes, your ways, your sovereign power, your gracious intervention into our rebellion and failure to rescue and redeem. Lord, we're so undeserving. We are by no measure anyone who could accomplish any of this. So we thank you that this plan comes by a promise and not by law. And we thank you that that promise ultimately came to fulfillment through your son Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin and our rebellion through faith in him. Thank you that we see in your word how Abraham Abraham responded in faith to your promises And it was credited to him as righteousness. Help us to see, Lord, in the ultimate fulfillment of all your promises in Jesus, our need to respond in faith, that we too might be found righteous in your sight. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us in our sin and brokenness, but you came and you dwelt among us. And you made an incredibly powerful and poignant display not only of your compassion and your goodness and love, but of your majesty and right to rule, full of grace and truth. Help us to love you more, to worship you more deeply, and to follow you more closely, for you're worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.